Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 9th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A 78-page petition for writ of mandate was filed against the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board by a representative group of five California injured workers, all of whom claim they have been denied their constitutionally guaranteed right to a speedy and unencumbered resolution of their claims. They say this was the result of the WCAB's issuance of what they call grant and study orders in response to petitions for reconsideration, seeking review of the trial-level decisions in their cases. The workers ask the Court of Appeal to find that this grant and study procedure is unconstitutional and unlawful and to revoke all of the grant and study orders issued by the WCAB and then to order the WCAB to provide a timetable within which it will render final decisions in all cases where grant and study orders have been issued. The California Labor Code requires that petitions for reconsideration be decided within 60 days. However, the workers allege that in many cases the board follows an unwritten, self-adopted policy and procedure when it issues the so-called grant and study orders which extend the time period for deciding the case indefinitely. And while the case is up on reconsideration for this extended period, the workers are precluded from seeking adjudication of any other disputes which may arise until the WCAB finally issues its final decision. They claim the WCAB provided data in response to a recent Public Records, Public Records Act request showing that it has issued such grant and study orders in over 500 cases within a three-year period alone. A number of amicus parties have been allowed to participate in the case, mostly insurance carriers, and one prominent lien claimant. And on May 4th, the Court of Appeal issued an order to show cause, directing the WCAB to show good cause why the relief sought by these injured workers should not be granted. The WCAB was directed to file its response by June 3, 2022, and all the other parties have until June 20th to reply. This will be a closely followed case, as the grand grant and study orders have issued in reconsideration cases filed by both applicants and defendants now for decades. And in an employment law case, it was a wage and hour case, the Court of Appeal ruled on a case against Walmart filed by Bijan Hill, a model, who appeared in 10 photo shoots organized by Walmart in San Francisco. Hill worked on a total of, fif a total of 15 days in non-consecutive periods of one or two days at a time and she alleged that this amounted to 10 separate instances of employment and that she was discharged at the end of each photo shoot. During this time, Hill was represented by Scout Talent Management Agency. Walmart had a contract with Scout and agreed to pay them a daily flat rate for each day of modeling services, which was to be passed on to Hill plus a commission. 
The contract specified that Scout and its personnel were independent contractors. Hill sued Walmart for its failure to pay her immediately after each photo shoot ended and sought more than $540,000 in penalties pursuant to California Labor Code Section 203. Walmart removed the case to the federal court based on diversity of citizenship and also filed a third-party complaint against Scout for indemnification. Then the district court granted summary judgment on Walmart's good-faith defense, concluding that there was a good-faith dispute about whether Hill was an independent contractor. And the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed the summary judgment in the case of Hill versus Walmart. The case outcome was supported by a regulation stating that a good-faith dispute that any wages are due will preclude imposition of waiting time penalties under the Labor Code. The regulation goes on to say that a good-faith dispute that any wages are due occurs when an employer presents a defense which, if successful, would preclude any recovery on the part of the employee. In this case, it was undisputed that if Hill were an independent contractor, then she would not be an employee entitled to an immediate payment of wages upon discharge. Consequently, Walmart's argument that Hill was an independent contractor was a good-faith dispute that any wages are due. The takeaway in this case here is that the potential penalty of more than a half million dollars can result in failure to pay for 15 days of work on time. And now our crime report. A California doctor was sentenced to 93 months in prison for defrauding Medicare, repackaging single-use catheters for reuse on patients, and submitting false declarations in a bankruptcy proceeding. The doctor was 55-year-old Donald Wu Lee, who lived in Temecula, California. He was charged in a 2016 indictment returned by a federal grand jury in the Central District of California. Lee was an internal medicine doctor who owned several medical clinics in the greater Los Angeles and Riverside areas. His medical license in California was surrendered in 2019 after disciplinary charges were filed against him. Lee recruited Medicare beneficiaries to his clinics, falsely diagnosed the beneficiaries, and provided the beneficiaries with medically unnecessary procedures, and then upcoded the bills in order to obtain a higher reimbursement. Lee submitted claims of about $12 million to Medicare for the vein ablation procedures he performed, and he received $4.5 million as a result. Lee was convicted after a five-day trial in 2019 when a jury found him guilty of seven counts of health care fraud and one count of adulteration of a medical device. And Lee also pleaded guilty in 2020 to one count of submitting false declarations in his bankruptcy proceeding. Lee was also ordered to pay more than $4.5 million in restitution to Medicare. And a court ruling in a fraud case filed against Kaiser Permanente illustrates several very sophisticated upcoding strategies by industry billers. 
The United States has intervened in six complaints pending in Northern California federal court, alleging that members of the Kaiser Permanente Consortium violated the False Claims Act by submitting inaccurate diagnoses codes for its Medicare Advantage plan enrollees. The Kaiser Permanente Consortium members are headquartered in Oakland, California. The six lawsuits were filed under the whistleblower provisions of the Act, which permit private parties to sue on behalf of the government and to receive a share of any recovery. The Act also permits the government to intervene in such lawsuits as it is done here. One of the plaintiffs, Rhonda Osanek, was the first case that was filed and was followed soon by five other cases which were consolidated in June of 2021. Kaiser then filed a motion to dismiss duplicative cases based on the first-to-file rule specified in bar of the Act. This says that no person may bring a related action based on the facts underlying the very first case that was filed. The rule on the, to rule on the motion, the court was required to compare the Osinek complaint with the complaints in the other five cases to determine whether or not the cases were related. So in the discussion leading up to the ruling, the opinion provides an excellent summary, if not a full treatise, on how sophisticated such efforts at upcoding and other Medicare billing strategies have become. Adjustments are made to the payments to Medicare Advantage plans based on demographic information and the diagnoses of each plan beneficiary. The adjustments are commonly referred to as risk scores. A beneficiary with more severe diagnosis will have a higher risk score, and CMS will make a larger risk-adjusted payment for that beneficiary. So how can this be a subject of a whistleblower lawsuit? Well, Osanek alleged that starting around 2007, Kaiser Permanente began a scheme to upcode diagnoses to ensure that Medicare payments for reimbursable were for high-value conditions. This was done by use of data mining for high-value cases, and then determining the diagnoses its doctors would need to make to support the higher reimbursement rate. She then alleges that there is an escalation process at Kaiser for physicians who do not agree with the data mining prompts and Kaiser physicians had to meet one-on-one with data quality trainers if they refused to make diagnostic changes that are presented by the data mining software. And then there were mandatory meetings called coding parties, where physicians are gathered in a single room with computers and asked to review past progress notes for addenda related to revised medical diagnoses. Another strategy discussed in this case was refreshing, with Osanek alleging that Kaiser tracks and rewards physicians based on the percentage of chronic conditions they are able to capture and refresh. She alleged the doctor would be told to include the chronic condition as a diagnosis for a visit, even if that condition was not at issue in the patient's current visit. 
and Kaiser allegedly had its doctors use addenda to retroactively diagnose long after the patient's visit for a condition for which the patient was not treated at the time of the face-to-face visit based on tests run after the face-to-face encounter. The 46-page opinion then compares and contrasts the allegations in the Osinek complaint with those in other cases, which then exposes nuances and embellishments in ways to upcode their cases. And in regulatory news, the Federal Arbitration Act, or FAA, is a federal law that provides for private dispute resolution through arbitration. An arbitration clause often is contained in a contract and requires the parties to resolve their disputes through an arbitration process, and mandatory arbitration clauses are widespread in the United States. In the world of employment law, many employers have mandatory arbitration clauses in contracts with their employees, hoping to limit the possibility of runaway jury verdicts in favor of former workers, as well as the risk of costly class action litigation. Substantial federal and state litigation has evolved over the years on the issue of federal preemption, limiting any state's attempt to restrict an employee's rights to force an employer's rights to force mandatory arbitration of disputes with its employees. Generally speaking, individual states have not been successful in litigation efforts to limit the preemption provisions of the FAA. But this month, President Biden has signed into law the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021, which is introduced by the legislature in 2017. The new act gives employees the option of bringing claims of sexual assault or sexual harassment cases either in arbitration or in a court of law. This new act applies to all claims that arise or accrue after March 3, 2022, regardless of the date of arbitration agreement with the employer. But the new act does not affect claims that arose or accrued before March 3rd. The act does not affect otherwise valid arbitration agreements for claims that are not related sexual assault or sexual harassment. What is unanswered in the new law is how it will apply when sexual assault and sexual harassment claims are intermixed with other employment law claims in a single litigation filing. The Travelers Companies, the country's largest workers' compensation insurer, just released its 2022 Injury Impact Report. The study analyzed more than 1.5 million workers' compensation claims over a five-year period, and it revealed that 35% of injuries occur during employees' first year on the job, regardless of age or industry experience. The most common causes of first-year injuries were overexertion, 27% of claims, slips, trips, and falls, 22%, being struck by an object, 14%, cuts and punctures, 6%, being caught in or between objects, 6%, 
And finally, motor vehicle accidents also at 6%. The most expensive claims were amputations, multiple traumas, electric shock, and dislocations. The restaurant industry experienced the most claims from first-year employees with 53% of the claims involved the newest workers, involving the newest workers. The construction industry was a close second, with nearly half of all claims coming from those who were new to the job. And first-year injuries led to more than 6 million lost workdays over the five-year period studied, with construction workers on average missing the most workdays due to an injury. Travelers concluded by saying, its data underscores the importance of comprehensive onboarding and training programs for employees. And in medical news, at the Interdisciplinary Conference on Orthopedic Value-Based Care, a presenter outlined how augmented reality use by surgeons is about to enter a dynamic growth curve. And an article published by Stanford University helps explain how this new technology might be used by surgeons. Surgeons practice an upcoming operation at the Stanford Neurosurgical Simulation Lab using images from actual patients so they can map out the surgery ahead of time. The three-dimensional aspect of the imagery eases surgeons' planning and improves the accuracy of the surgery with the aim of producing safer procedures. Stanford Medicine doctors are using the VR technology for the brain and spinal cord because these organs are stable and lend themselves to imagery, unlike other body parts which move with blood flow and breathing. But the technology may soon be available for the rest of the body. Surgeons typically use video feeds while they are operating, but the newer VR technology adds a three-dimensional view which they can superimpose on the real-time video. And Johns Hopkins neurosurgeons have performed the institution's first augmented reality surgeries in living patients. The technology used by the physicians for the augmented reality surgeries consisted of a headset with a see-through eye display that projects images of the patient's internal anatomy, such as bones and other tissue based on CT scans, essentially giving the surgeons x-ray vision. In California, where overdose deaths have been rising for years, addiction experts say administering a month's worth of anti-addiction medication and a single injection is a better solution. Yet, despite its promise, the use of injectable buprenorphine remains fairly limited, especially compared with other forms of addiction medication. Buprenorphine is one of the three medications approved in the U.S. to treat opioid use disorder, and it works by binding to opioid receptors in the brain and reducing cravings and withdrawal symptoms. Successful patients often stay on buprenorphine for years, but the patient must commit to taking the medication at least once a day, and many fall out of treatment.
Oral forms of buprenorphine have been available to treat addiction since 2002 and can be purchased as a generic for less than $100 a month. Injectable buprenorphine, sold under the brand name Sublocade, received FDA approval in 2017, and it has a hefty list price of nearly $1,900 for a single monthly injection. And addiction experts say sublocade use remains limited because of the regulatory hurdles required to dispense it. Providers must register with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration and obtain a waiver to prescribe buprenorphine because it's considered a controlled substance. In addition, clinics must complete an FDA safety certification program to dispense a medication. And sublocade can be ordered only by a specialty pharmacy, which must also pass the FDA program. Oral buprenorphine, by contrast, is a simple prescription that most local local drugstores keep in stock. California's Medicaid program does not require prior authorization, but providing sublocade is still a challenge. In states where Medicaid plans may still require prior authorization, waits for sublocade can stretch into months. Researchers at the University of California, San Diego, have developed a smartphone app that could allow people to screen for Alzheimer's disease, ADHD, and other neurological diseases and disorders by simply recording close-ups of their eye. The app uses a near-infrared camera, which is built into newer smartphones for facial recognition, along with a regular selfie camera, to track how a person's pupil changes in size. These pupil measurements could be used to assess a person's cognitive condition. The technology is described in a paper that will be presented at the ACM Computer Human Interaction Conference on Human Factors in Computing Systems. Measuring the changes in pupil diameter is done by performing what's called a pupil response test. The test could offer a simple and easy way to diagnose and monitor various neurological diseases and disorders. However, it currently requires specialized and costly equipment, making it impractical to perform outside a lab or clinic. Engineers at the UC San Diego Digital Health Lab collaborated with researchers at the UC San Diego Center for Mental Health Technology to develop a more affordable and accessible solution. The app's measurements were compared to those taken by a device called a pupillometer, which is the gold standard for measuring pupil size. The researchers also included various features in their app to make it more user-friendly for older adults. The Digital Health Lab is continuing this work in a project to enable similar pupillometry functions on any smartphone rather than just the newer ones. The team will work with older individuals with mild cognitive impairment to test the app as a risk screening tool for early-stage Alzheimer's disease. This work was funded by the National Institute of Aging.
And in other industry news, organizations typically measure safety and health performance by tracking incidents after the fact with lagging metrics. Hoping to improve that method, the American Society of Safety Professionals has published a new voluntary national consensus standard that outlines a balanced measurement approach using leading, lagging, and impact metrics. The new standard can help organizations prevent injuries, illnesses, and many other incidents from occurring in the first place and empowers a business to take a more comprehensive and effective approach to safety and health in the workplace. The organization claims that relying solely on lagging metrics does not improve workplace safety. Instead, employers need a complete systematic method to influence what happens while understanding how and why it happens. This standards balanced approach measures actions that drive improvement and is a major development that can help businesses thrive, especially in today's challenging environment. In addition to introducing the new standard, the organization revised two other standards that will also help advance workplace safety and health. One of them covers safety requirements for entering confined spaces and provides minimum safety requirements to be followed while entering, exiting, and working in these spaces. Confined space safety standards are critical across all industries because first responders may not have the capability to perform a rescue in all circumstances. Proactively implementing the revised standards reduces risks such as oxygen deficiency, which is a leading atmospheric hazard and confined space incidents. The second revised standard covers reducing slip missteps on walking, working surfaces, which provides guidance for adequate slip resistance. Falls are the leading cause of accidental deaths in the United States. While these hazards exist in many work environments, Organizations can take simple steps to mitigate or eliminate them. In addition to implementing safety and health standards, all employers are encouraged to regularly conduct workplace risk assessments, which are effective in combating many safety and health issues across all industries. ASSP has been at the forefront of helping occupational safety and health professionals protect people and property for more than 100 years through their efforts to prevent workplace injuries, illnesses, and fatalities. You can find more information on the new standards on the ASSP website. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.